Support for TPR comes from Texas Biomed, committed to building healthier communities through innovative scientific research and STEM education programs. Texas Biomed stands for science. Learn more at txbiomed.org. Pablo De La Rosa is a colleague of mine. He's a freelance reporter for TPR in the Rio Grande Valley. He's also one of the thousands of people in the RGV who got COVID during Texas's deadly summer surge back in 2020. My COVID symptoms themselves were very mild, except for the fact that I could not taste anything for a week. That's pretty typical of a COVID infection for people of all ages. And because he was in his 30s and otherwise healthy, he expected that to be the worst of it. And it was until it wasn't. In the months after Delarose's active COVID infection resolved, his health started to fall apart. I developed high blood pressure, which I've never had. I had to start taking medicine for high blood pressure. I developed chronic fatigue that forced me to even stop working for weeks at a time because of how intense it was. He started to experience the labored breathing he expected to deal with back when he had an active COVID infection, but didn't. I had very reduced lung capacity for months. You know, it wasn't that I had a cough or anything like that. It's just I couldn't breathe and I couldn't really do more than walk, I don't know, around the house without losing my breath and having to sit down and catch my breath. And that's how I lived for a long time. He went to the doctor, desperate for help. And I've had so many tests, like you couldn't believe, of every kind. I mean, I've had MRIs, I've had CAT scans. I went to one specialist who, for about, I don't know, about two or three weeks, he thought I had a brain tumor, right? They were looking at that possibility, and that was really scary. Um, They didn't end up finding a brain tumor after all, after some follow-up tests. While doctors at De La Rosa searched frantically for answers, his health continued to deteriorate. I'll tell you what the worst of it was. The worst of it was just a few months ago when I lived for about a month just face down on the couch at my mom's house because that's all I could do. I would get up for about an hour a day to eat a little, go to the bathroom when I could, and that was my whole life. That was my whole life for those four or five, six weeks. My body was shut down. Mentally, I was shut down. I was shut down in every way, but I was awake the whole day. <laughs> you know, I wasn't asleep. I was in there, and I was thinking the whole time. And I think that that was the hardest thing that I've ever been through because I was trapped in there, you know? And <laughs> I would have liked to watch television. I would have liked to listen to a radio program or read or do something, but I really did not have the capacity for a moment to stand light or sound or to have an emotion about anything. It's a very strange thing to describe, really. This is what long COVID has looked like for Pablo De La Rosa, one of tens of millions of Americans suffering from the post-COVID syndrome. The U.S. Government Accountability Office estimated in March that up to 23 million Americans are experiencing long COVID, and the true number may be much, much higher. Each one of these people experience long COVID differently, but many of them find their lives have been similarly upended. Well, (laughs) 
it's changed my life dramatically because, uh, you know, I was a person that liked to be out a lot. I'm a very social person and I'm a very um, face-to-face kind of person. I'm a person who loves working with other people. Even in in my work, I love working with people face-to-face and um, I love going to events all the time and and, uh, being involved in a lot of different projects. Now, I'm pretty much home all the time. You know, it's very difficult for me to see people. It's very difficult for me to go out. This man in his 30s, once vital and vibrant, has become largely housebound. And the GAO estimates long COVID has pushed more than a million Americans out of work. And as waves of Omicron and its extremely contagious subvariants burn through previously uninfected populations, and it becomes clear that people with mild or asymptomatic cases are not immune from long COVID, I decided to talk to a San Antonio doctor who runs two long COVID clinics to learn what is known now about post-COVID syndromes and what we need to do to prepare for the potential of decades of disability that may remain long after the pandemic is over. From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. We're holding this hearing virtually in compliance with the regulations for remote committee hearings pursuant to House Resolution 8. Back in February, the health subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee got on Zoom to talk about long COVID. The pandemic has been described as a mass disabling event because of the vast number of people who, after contracting COVID, are now newly disabled or chronically ill. San Antonio Congressman Lloyd Doggett reached out to a doctor who knows a lot about long COVID. Uh, Dr. Verdusco Gutierrez. Thank you, Chairman Doggett and honorable members of the Health Subcommittee. My name is Monica Verdusco Gutierrez, MD. I'm professor and distinguished chair of rehabilitation medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Dr. Gutierrez has been treating long COVID since cases started appearing. In August 2020, before we had even names like PASC or long COVID, persons with COVID-19 began to show up with fatigue that they said was 100 times worse than their cancer-related fatigue or brain fog that was like chemo brain. They had dizziness that was so bad it kept them in bed, but they were thankful for the telemedicine visits and shortness of breath that kept them from work or playing with their kids outside. It was and now she runs two long COVID clinics. Gutierrez was testifying before Congress to sound an alarm and ask for help. I can only do so much for this population as I see one person at a time, but Congress has a role in ensuring they get the services they need. My national society, the AAPMNR, has developed a past collaborative of 35 clinics, and we've called on the administration and Congress to develop a comprehensive plan. And today, she's talking to us. So let's get right to the point, shall we? We just heard Pablo's story, and so we have an idea of what long COVID has been like for him. But, Dr. Gutierrez, is there one accepted definition that everyone in the science and medical field sort of agrees on and uses? So long COVID is known by a couple of things. So post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2, 
post-COVID condition. So this is when someone has had COVID or presumed COVID, because sometimes at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an access to testing. And so you have COVID and then you have symptoms that continue, but it doesn't always have to be just continuous from the time when you had COVID. Sometimes there is new and reappearing symptoms. And that's what's nice about the World Health Organization's definition says, you know, you have symptoms that are ongoing for two months, but they usually appear within some in the first three months after you've had COVID, but they don't have to be the exact same symptoms. They can be new or they can be reoccurring or they can be continuous. And so that's what um, long COVID is. And there are some symptoms that most all of the people who are experiencing long COVID seem to sort of struggle with to a greater or lesser degree. Um, fatigue, I've heard a lot about. It's probably the most common, followed by a laundry list of others. Exercise intolerance, shortness of breath, hair loss, concentration deficits, um, numbness, tingling, I mean, just kind of so many symptoms across the board. And a lot of people sometimes don't even realize that their symptoms are related to long COVID. But, you know, when they think about it, oh, it's, I've been really tired recently. I've been needing to take naps. Oh, that's probably related. Oh, I can't just train for a marathon like I used to be able to train for a marathon. I am having a hard time finding my words. I um, I'm getting some more ringing in my ears. I'm getting dizzy. I'm getting headaches more frequently than I ever got before. And I'm having migraines all the time. Um, I'm having numbness on, you know, one side of my body or in, on my legs. My legs are really sore. I mean, there's just so many parts of the body that can be affected, including sometimes even new disease states developing. So, you know, we're seeing more patients getting diabetes, more patients maybe now developing hypertension, more autoimmune diseases, because uh, sometimes it's the COVID's a trigger for your body. For someone maybe who had a tendency to an autoimmune disease, then it's triggering it. So that makes me think of my aunt. She died last year of, of many things, but she had COVID when she died. And she also had diabetes, which she'd struggled with for years. She even had an amputation over the last couple of years. And she had another virus, too, and just about every other thing that she'd been dealing with for years. Um, with COVID, it just seemed that everything got so much worse. So I'm, I'm obviously not one of those people who will say that she died with COVID, not of COVID. But clearly, she had a lot going on in addition to COVID. And it sounds to me like you're saying that the COVID virus just sort of gets in there and triggers things that you either already have or to which you're predisposed. COVID turns the amplifier on. So let's say, you know, someone might have had just like a little bit of fibromyalgia, then it's, you know, they can't be controlled. Is there, you know, where they had blood pressure, their high blood pressure and they were on one medication and now, it, you know, they need two medications. Did they have a really controlled diabetes with a good hemoglobin A1C and then now they don't. And so, yeah, for sure. It's all the inflammation that's driving kind of worse disease states for sure. Okay. Inflammation. Uh, which is an immune response. And I read something recently where a doctor said that long COVID 
could be the result of inflammation and then your immune system just sort of generally sort of flying off the handle and fighting imaginary invaders just indiscriminately. So like you said, it's a little bit of everything. It's inflammation is driven from having the infection, including mild infection. And then there's what they call endotheliitis or endothelial dysfunction, vascular and microclots and um, autoimmune antibodies that are being developed. And there's also reactivation of other viruses. So some patients maybe have had Epstein-Barr virus in the past, and then they see that it's reactivated, um, also causing issues or hepatite, um, herpes viruses being reactivated, um, gut dysbiosis. So the GI and the gut system and the gut is really tied into your immune system as well. So that's thrown off. There could be microclots. Again, like I said, the vascularity um, means the blood vessels are a little bit more leaky, just like the gut's leaky. And so that's where the inflammation can go into places where it's not supposed to be and just drive disease everywhere. And then the other thing we'd heard, everyone heard about like the spike protein, you know, that attaches to the ACE2 receptors and there's ACE2 receptors all over the body, you know, pancreas, muscles, heart, lungs. And so that's why it also can impact so many different organs, but there are studies now where there's like months and months later finding abnormal immune responses and abnormal proteins um, and inflammatory proteins in the spinal fluid too. And so it's, yeah, not good. And it's particularly not good because people are getting long COVID that expected not to have any problems with this virus at all. A lot of the patients we see are young and it's not the same population that are being hospitalized. It's going to be a different population because long COVID can be in patients who had very mild disease and you know, we're still learning what pa- makes patients be at risk. Some of the toughest ones are maybe college students and they get long COVID and they have impacts that, you know, with their memory or, and, or let's say memory is impacted and their ability to concentrate and study that could turn an A student to a B student and a B student may not get into medical school if they wanted to do that, for example, or if someone's an an athlete and they were trying to get to the highest level and now they can't compete where they were competing before. And that's going to impact their long-term outcome as well. Then we have people in their thirties like Pablo people in that age group where they have careers and kids and they may be taking care of parents too. And then they get this debilitating illness and they have to see doctors all the time. And then they have to try to work full time too. And they have to start worrying about maybe they're going to lose their job and then lose their health insurance. And then they're unable to support their families. Exactly. That is right. Do you have to, you have visits and you have therapy and, oh, you're supposed to have a job so that you can do it. So it is indescribably difficult. And if you lose your job and you lose the health insurance you had associated with your job and you're too sick to go find another job with good health insurance, you can try to get disability. Definitely right now, the number one Social Security Administration disability-related claim is related to long COVID. And so definitely they're getting a lot of applications for people who need disability due to long COVID. And it is recognized by the ADA as a disability that you know people can get 
a federally mandated FMLA and such. But still, Social Security Administration is trying to figure out, well, who's going to, you know, meet criteria to get disability? And then even if patients get disability, they don't get on Medicare right away. There's a 24-month wait to get on Medicare as well. So they may, you know, have this period where maybe they do get disability, but it um, maybe, you know, gives them a few payments, but that doesn't that doesn't give them Medicare services for two years. So then there's going to, again, be this lull of time where they could be getting worse and not getting better and not getting treatments or anything that they could be needing. And so it's difficult. So for some people, the outlook is pretty bleak. The outlook is very bleak. I've had some patients also that they cannot work because of COVID, but then they have nothing else. So then they just try to go back and then you worry about what's their quality of work going to be. You know, are they going to be able to do what they did before? Are they just setting themselves up for failure again? So some patients, you know, just losing their jobs, not being able to go back to what they do, um, just doing something else or, you know, having to rely on other family members or become homeless or, you know, it's just, it's terrible. You know, it's easy to see how someone might become sort of hopeless. You know, they, they have this disease that no one fully understands yet. And some people don't even believe exists. They can't really work. Then they can't support themselves. They can't get medical care without health insurance in this country. They can't get treatment, so they can't get better, and they can't get their lives back. It seems like it could be a devastating spiral, and we know there are people with long COVID who've died by suicide. You know, one thing that a lot of, you know, practitioners or may want to say is like, oh, you're making, it's just because you're depressed that you're feeling this way, but that's not the case. And I hate when that happens. It's really, you know, inflammation that we're seeing in patients, inflammation that crosses the blood brain barrier actually depletes some of your own brain's neurotransmitters. And some of those neurotransmitters are things like serotonin that keeps us happy. And so that's actually happening because of a biological process, not because, oh, you're just depressed and now you're fatigued and you can't, you know, do your work. No, it's actually a biological process that's happening because of the inflammation we're seeing from COVID in some patients with long COVID. And that's going to, you know, drive more depression too. And then unfortunately for some patients, you know, there, there has been, you know, needs to be admitted to psychiatric hospitals, psychotic breaks, and unfortunately suicides. Yeah. Mental health is health, my friend. I find a reason to say that at least once a day. Biological health and mental health are not separate entities and should not be treated as such. Mental health is health. Oh, I love it. Yes, it's so true. Okay, so we're going to take a brief break before we talk more about the barriers to care for people with long COVID and the consequences of people sick with long COVID not getting care. That's when Petri Dish continues. (laughs) 
Support for TPR comes from Texas Biomed, committed to building healthier communities through innovative scientific research and STEM education programs. Texas Biomed stands for science. Learn more at txbiomed.org. If you're enjoying the show, here's another podcast you'll like, What the Health? I'm Julie Rovner, host of the show and chief Washington correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Every week, top reporters from outlets including the New York Times, Politico, and CNN join me to discuss the latest health and health policy news. Confused by all the health policy jargon? We'll break it down in terms that are easy to understand. KHN's What the Health. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Petri Dish. We're talking to Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez, Chair of Rehabilitation Medicine at UT Health San Antonio and the director of two clinics for people with long COVID. Let's get back to it. Okay, so long COVID isn't cheap or easy to treat, even with good, and I'm, you know, using air quotes for the word good, good insurance. One report said there are an average of, I think, 50 symptoms associated with long COVID. So the right there is one systematic review that it was like this. There are 50 symptoms, but there was another survey that was done and there was 200 symptoms. And it was actually that the more symptoms you had, if you had 15 or more symptoms, the more likely it was going to last for longer than three months. So still 15 symptoms is a lot of symptoms to have. Um, for anyone. And so that's also makes it hard to be addressed in typical settings for when you see your physician, you know, usually visits are in out come in, you know, 15 minutes kind of thing. You don't have, you can't address 15 symptoms in 15 minutes. Um, if you can, please let me know how that would be amazing, <laughs> but it's not going to happen. And then the different resources needed for each one of those things are you know, cost prohibitive if you don't have a right kind of health insurance or um, payer or a million dollars in your back pocket. The communities that are truly being pummeled by this pandemic, immigrant communities, low-wage essential workers like those who work in food plants and, you know, grocery store employees, bus drivers, jobs done overwhelmingly by people of color. These people may not have access to any kind of health care. Already, this is a population at risk. Already, this is a population at higher risk of cancer, at higher risk of Alzheimer's, dementias, at high, higher risk of uh, cardiovascular diseases and strokes who have had COVID because we know it disproportionately affects certain populations, especially multi-generational homes and certain type of workers who had to go and work in, um, you know, where they didn't have the ability to just work at home, safely at home um, and had to be exposed. You know, they may not have access to care now, but are we going to see an explosion of autoimmune diseases, of dementias, of uh, diabetes, of metabolic syndrome, of everything, unfortunately. More to come. So we're in for trouble, it seems. We're not going to just experience COVID during the course of the pandemic, but long COVID may follow us for years, impacting our nation's productivity and our economy. Um, I used the term decades of disability earlier in the show, and it sounds like I wasn't exaggerating. Right. And some of the things we still don't know yet. It's like, actually... Um, with polio, there is post-polio. And post-polio didn't show up in some patients 
until decades later, 30, 40 years later, that they started having um, impacts from their initial polio that they had when they were children. So in my clinic, I see patients who have post-polio, even though polio was something from a long time ago. So what is going to, we still are going to see what's going to happen down the road. We just still know viruses cause, you know, Epstein-Barr virus now, number one cause of multiple sclerosis. There is, you know, polio that causes post-polio down the the road. There is um, HPV that causes cervical cancer. What else is COVID going to cause? One thing that seems really important to me as we face these decades of disability is trying to find ways to keep people working, right? I mean, people need to feel and be useful, I think, and they need to, you know, obviously support themselves and their loved ones. And and they need, uh, as it's set up now, they often need work so that they can have health insurance plans. So is it possible to balance employment and trying to recover from long covid One of the best things I tell people that we can do is offer accommodations so that they can be successful in their work. I really want to make someone successful in what they do. So if that means that when they try to go back, that it's a graduated return to work program, that they just don't start full time. Because if they start full time, it might knock them out and they might not be able to do anything. But really to say, why don't we start three days a week and work, you know, the first like two hours each time? Or do I get someone accommodations where they can work some of their work at home, where they can get disabled parking. So that way they don't have to walk, you know, two blocks to get into their office building. By then they've used all their energy and then they can't, you know, do their mental work the rest of the day. So again, it's, you know, trying to find accommodations for the energy that they have but bosses aren't running charities, right? So how do you, as a doctor, try to convince an employer to make accommodations for a staffer rather than just sort of fire them and hire someone who's healthy? I think that there's, you can have, you know, big losses when you have someone leave and then you have to recruit someone new and go through that process. That's really expensive. And right now, you know, we know a lot of people are leaving. It's the great resignation period. And some of it is probably because people are dealing with long COVID, but also people are wanting to prioritize different things in their life. So as someone who's a boss, if you can, you know, be that boss that's flexible and say, can they, you know, be able to work part-time from home and only come to the office for some days? Can I, you know, get them augmentative technology, like a dictation system, so they don't have to type? Can I, you know, offer them more breaks? Can they, um, uh, you know, get a better parking spot so they don't have to walk so far? Can we do a different work schedule? Can I allow them to get back slowly instead of, you know, expecting them to be there on the first day and work full time? Um, then those are things that are important for bosses to do and, you know, believe the patient and make sure that, you know, that they have all the information for FMLA because they may need to intermittently, you know, take time off for appointments or make appointments. And that's something that they also have to be understanding about. Okay. One more question. What do you as a healthcare provider who treats long COVID patients and the patients who are fighting to heal and hold on to their lives who have long COVID, what do you all need from us? 
there has to be a national response that still says this is go- COVID is not over. COVID, you know, long COVID is truly a public health issue and we still need support for these clinics. We need support for research and we need to, you know, address it with uh, you know, the presidential authority that says long COVID is something that is going to be here for years and years to come. And we need to um, support it, address it, finance it now. Thank you, Dr. Gutierrez. A couple of days ago, I went to my daughter's dance recital and in a full auditorium, I was among just a handful, I think three people who were wearing masks. Even for folks who have been scrupulous over the last years, taking all the precautions, masking every time they left the house, you know, people just aren't anymore. It feels safe now, like we're done with this. We're in a post-COVID world. But we're really not, you know? Cases are rising. Hospitalizations are rising. Again. And evidence is mounting that people who had mild or even asymptomatic cases of COVID are, weeks or months later, finding themselves having trouble breathing, sleeping, even thinking. Their hearts may race, their blood pressure may rise or fall without rhyme or reason, or like Pablo, they may find themselves unable to get out of a prone position for weeks. Pablo had a mild case. Yet here he is, almost two years later, trying to figure out how to recover from the bomb COVID dropped into his life. And children are experiencing long COVID, too, though their risk of severe disease from an initial infection has been, with all the variants so far, vanishingly low. Serious post-COVID syndromes like multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children have been recognized since early in the pandemic. Milder forms of long COVID may occur in between 2 and 10 percent of children's cases, according to research published in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal. And keep an eye on those unexplained cases of severe acute hepatitis among children around the world. At the time of this recording, there were fewer than 400 known cases, but they are severe enough to warrant the attention they're getting. Yes, they are unexplained, but there is enough evidence to suggest It's possible they're linked to past COVID infection and it's getting further study. Kids with long COVID, young adults with long COVID, people in the prime of their lives hobbled by an unexpected post-viral syndrome, decades of disability. COVID is still not something to be taken lightly. We are not going to be in a post-COVID world for some time. That's why, if you see me at a recital or any other indoor gathering of breathing humans, I'll still be wearing my mask. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by me and edited by TPR News Director Dan Katz, sound design by John Pinnow, and music by the other Don Dixon. Petri Dish was created by Fernanda Camarena, Dan Katz, and me, and is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration of public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.